Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We are continuing um, our study in Romans, and in particular, this amazing chapter, chapter 8. Today, we're going to be looking at verses 26 to 30. When I was a teenager driving around with my friends, um, we always wondered whether we would actually make it to the destination. Um, we were, like most teenagers, short on, on money, and we tried to push a tank of gas as far as it could possibly go. And you probably know that the, the E on the, on the gas gauge doesn't mean completely empty, at least not at first. You, you can still drive for a bit uh, longer. And um, one time we drove a little bit too far on, on empty, and we ran out of gas on the freeway. And one of the nice things about running out of gas on the freeway is you're going 65, 70 miles an hour, so you can coast to the shoulder. So we, uh, we ran out of gas. We're on the 163 south right before the, the exit for 52 west. Do you, know, do you know that area? I mean, it's a dead zone. There's nothing there. There's nothing, no gas station within walking distance. And so we're on the side of the road. And um, thankfully, another group of friends of ours happened to drive by, and they saw us. And they stopped, picked us up, took us to a gas station. We put a few dollars of gas in a, in a can, and they took us back to the car. We were able to put the gas in the car, just enough to get to the gas station and fill up the tank, and, and we went on our way. You know, every time, we're always wondering, are we going to make it? You know, we, are we going to have enough gas in the tank to, to get there? And last week, we, as we were looking at Romans 8, we, we saw this wonderful reality that there is a future ahead of us that is, is wonderful beyond our imagination, this future glory that God has promised to us, even though in the present we, we endure suffering. And, and Paul holds out this hope of the future. He says, this is where you're headed. And, it, and it's designed, that hope for the future is designed to strengthen us here and now as we suffer, to enable us to patiently endure suffering in the present as we wait for that reality. But um, maybe, as you heard what Paul said last week in chapter 8, maybe you wondered, um, that, that glory sounds amazing, but am I going to make it there? Am I, is there going to be enough gas in the tank to get me to that destination? I mean, I, I'm tired. I'm weak. Um, my faith wavers. I have doubts. Um, I have trouble holding on to that hope. Maybe that's what you've been thinking. I mean, I think about the things that Paul says here in Romans 8, and I'm like, those are amazing, but in the day-to-day, uh, it's really hard to keep that perspective, that, that long view, that future glory that's coming. And um, today's passage here in Romans 8, it's designed to give you confidence. What, what Paul says here in these verses we're looking at, he, he knows how weak and weary we are as Christian men and women. He knows that this journey is not easy, that life is hard, and so he gives us reasons for confidence. Reasons for confidence for the journey. And it's as if he's saying, look, here's how you can know that you know that you know that you know that that future glory is yours, that you're going to make it, that one day you will be in glory with Christ. So let's look at what he has to say, Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. I'm going to read the, the passage for us. That's page 944 in the Pew Bible, page 8 in uh, the, the bulletin, Romans 8, beginning in verse 26. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Let's uh, pray and ask for his help. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would cause us today to be rooted and grounded in these wonderful promises, in these wonderful realities. Would you strengthen us to endure? Would you give us confidence where maybe we're, we're weary and faltering? Lord, would you help us to rest our whole selves on you and your grace? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to see uh, three reasons for confidence in our passage today. So three reasons for confidence. The first is the Spirit's help. The first reason for confidence is the Spirit's help. The Holy Spirit is our helper. He comes to us and helps us in this journey. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, God's promise. God promises to turn our bad things to good. So the Spirit's help, God's promise, and then reason number three for confidence, God's purpose. God has purposed and planned to bring you to glory, and nothing and no one will stop him from fulfilling his purpose. So the Spirit's help, God's promise, and then third, God's purpose. So the first reason for confidence that we see here in Romans chapter 8 is the Spirit's help. The Spirit's help. Look at what Paul says in verses 26 and 27. He says, the Spirit helps us. And and just thinking about it in context, Paul's been saying in, in the present, right here and right now, we suffer. We We encounter trials. We encounter difficulties. Life is hard. He talked earlier about how we, we groan under the burden of these, these uh, concerns and cares, and the Holy Spirit comes alongside us in the midst of these trials, difficulties, and sufferings, comes alongside us to help us. He's, he's with us. He, he dwells in us, and He comes alongside to help. And, and just realize, God doesn't step back and say, hey, Christian, um, I, I've saved you, I've done a lot for you, now just figure it all out yourself and, and do this Christian life thing on your own. No, he sends his spirit as helper. And, and why do we need help? And you look at what Paul says here in, in the verses, he says, we're weak. We're weak. Um, the spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul says. Now, the Bible's perspective on human beings is very nuanced. On the, on the one hand, we are God's image bearers. We have inherent value and dignity. We have potential as God's image bearers for, for greatness. And on the other hand, the Bible says we're weak. We're just creatures. We're frail. We're, we're limited. We're beset by creaturely weakness. Um, maybe you remember Isaiah's famous line, all flesh is grass and the grass withers and the flower fades. I mean, that's us. We're weak. And, and Paul here, when he talks about weakness, 
he doesn't mean sinful weakness. He's talking primarily about just simply creaturely weakness. Uh, we're not God. Uh, newsflash, right? We're not God. We, we can't do everything. We don't know everything. We can't be everywhere at the same time. We're limited. We get tired. We get hungry. We have to sleep every single day. I mean, some of us think that we don't, but we do. We're limited creatures, weak and frail creatures. I had a fresh reminder this week of my creaturely weakness. So um, Mondays are my day off, and this past Monday I was out in the front yard gardening, pulling weeds, pruning bushes, that kind of thing. And I, and I leaned over just very slightly to, to pick up something, and my back, my lower back, just freaked out. And the, the muscles in my lower back just tensed up, and they would not relax and um, I kind of felt like I was 40 years older than I really am. I mean, I am in my 40s, but I felt like I'm a lot further along at this moment. And it was a real ordeal to get back into the house. And I spent the rest of the day um, in bed with an ice pack, a heating pad, and Advil. And, and it really wasn't until like Wednesday afternoon that I, I felt a little bit more like myself. Um, creaturely weakness. We're frail. And Paul zeroes in here on a, a particular weakness of ours. He, he zeroes in on our ignorance. He says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Or in other words, we don't know what's necessary. We don't know exactly what to pray in, in a given situation. And again, the context, suffering. Do, do, do I pray for relief? Do I pray for strength to endure? I, I don't know exactly what God wants. What do I, what do, I do? What do I pray? Um, I'm not sure. I don't know what's best. I don't know exactly what God's will is in this situation. And, and maybe you know that kind of experience. It doesn't have to be suffering exactly, but maybe even this past week you, you had this kind of experience. You're, you're faced with confusing circumstances. I don't know what to do here. I don't know even what to pray. I mean, Lord, I'm just, I'm at a loss here. We're limited, Paul says. The Spirit comes to help us in our weakness because we don't know exactly what to pray when life's hard or confusing. And so Paul says the Spirit comes as our helper. He comes to help us in our weakness. And how exactly does He help us? How does God respond to our weakness? Um, Some of us have this idea that God is up in heaven and He looks down at us in our weakness and He just kind of... You know, he's frustrated, he's disappointed, he, he wonders, why did I choose these people to belong to my family? Um, I should have found more competent people to represent me in this world. But notice, Paul doesn't say that's how God responds to our weakness. He says, not even close, actually. He says, the Spirit himself, verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. In other words, on our behalf, with groaning too deep for words. And so, Paul says, we don't know what to pray but the Spirit does. God's Holy Spirit does. And not only does He know what to pray, He prays for us, Paul says. He intercedes for us. And, and here's the thing. I mean, we're talking about God the Holy Spirit, not just some angel or something like that, but, but God the Holy Spirit. He knows what you need. I mean, He knows it even, even better than you do. 
He, he knows your weakness. He knows your context. He, he knows your circumstances. He, he knows exactly what you need, what the challenges are that you're facing. He knows your unique makeup and what would be most beneficial to you in any given situation. And so he prays. And his prayers are tailored to your specific needs. I mean, most of our prayers are just kind of like, Lord, help, and, and we don't know exactly what, what kind of help is needed. The Holy Spirit knows. And His prayers, His intercession for you is tailored exactly to what you need, exactly to what would be best for you in that particular circumstance. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. And, and, and notice the groaning theme again. Remember Paul last week said, um, all of creation groans waiting for uh, the children of God to enter into their glory. We groan in this time of suffering. And then Paul says here, the Spirit himself groans too, with groanings too deep for words. That's the way the, the ESV puts it. Um, the idea isn't so much that these groanings are, are ineffable, rather they're, they're wordless groans. They're wordless groans. And, and here's the point. The Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit doesn't stand apart from us in our, in our weakness and need. He isn't detached from our, our daily lives and, and cares. He's intimately involved. I mean, He, he knows our confusion. He knows our pains. He knows our concerns. And in a sense, he, he makes them his own. He, he groans in us and with us and for us. And he, and he brings all of it before our God and Father. And, and notice verse 27. The Holy Spirit's intercession is effective. It's effective. Paul says, "...and he who searches hearts..." Speaking of God our Father, he, he knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, for believers, according to the will of God. So the Spirit knows your needs, the Spirit knows God's will, and He brings them together. He, he marries the two, your need, God's will. The, the Spirit prays for you what you would have prayed if you knew what God knows. I mean, put it that way. He prays exactly what you would pray if you knew everything God knows. It, it, it's just amazing intercession. He knows what God wants for us. He knows what we need and he prays for it. I mean, talk about confidence for the journey. I'm weak. I'm weary. I, I don't know what to pray. God, the Holy Spirit is interceding for me. Now, I don't know any Christians who feel like they're just, you know, knocking it out of the park in their prayer life. Um, I've never really met anybody who says anything even close to that. Um, most of us wish our prayer life was better. You know, most of us, um, for most of us, our prayer life is, is, if we're honest, a source of shame. You know, we're, we, we feel like we don't pray as regularly as we would like. We don't pray with the kind of intensity that we should. Um, and when we do sit down to pray, it's so easily distracted. I mean, I'm not the only one, right? I'm not the only one who sits down to pray and you start thinking of all the, the million and a half things you got to do that day. Um, we're, you know, we're ashamed of our prayer life. We're, we beat ourselves up about it. But what's God's response to our weakness in prayer? You know, is it a lecture? Is it scolding? Is it frustration? No, I mean, according to the Paul, it's none of those things. His response is a helper. 
his response is to give us one, to send one to us who, who knows us, who's with us, and prays for us. I mean, what Paul's communicating here, the, the Spirit interceding for us, the Spirit who knows God's mind, the Father who knows the Spirit's mind in intercession. I mean, he's talking about God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in constant communication about the kids. How are the kids doing? What do they need? What can we do for them? I mean, Paul's describing this is just what God does for us. You know, much of the time my prayers are, are so basic. You know, it's all I can do to get out a little help, Lord. <laughs> Lord, do something. Um, I, don't, I don't even know what to pray, God. And, and it feels, I mean, some, when I pray like that, I feel like, oh, these prayers are so lame. I mean, I, I'm a pastor. I should, I should know how to pray better. Feels so lame. But here's the thing about my feeble prayers. Here's the thing about your feeble prayers. They don't hinder God's will from being done in your life. You might not know what to pray. God, the Holy Spirit, does know what to pray for you. And so the Spirit intercedes for you. So the first reason for confidence, how can you know? How can you know that you will make it to the coming glory? The Spirit's help. The Spirit's help. The, the second reason for confidence, God's promise. God's promise, verse 28. The Spirit helps us. That's the first reason for confidence. But God's promise also gives us confidence about the future. Paul says in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, Jonathan Edwards in the, the 18th century he paraphrased this promise like this. I, I love how he put it. God promises that your bad things will turn out for your good. God promises that your bad things, the, the sufferings you experience, the pain, the grief, the sorrow, your bad things will turn out for your good. That's, that's the promise God makes here in verse 28. Now, this is a well-known promise, right? I mean, we, this is like one of those go-to verses as a, as a Christian. And it's well-known, but it's easily misunderstood. And, you know, it's, I, I like to think of this verse as one of those uh, coffee mug promises. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's just this nice little saying that is great to have on a coffee mug as you're sipping your coffee in the morning. You see it and you think, that's a nice little uh, heartwarming thought. You know, all things work together for good. I mean, that's just a great way to start the morning. And it, it's sort of like every cloud has a silver lining. Um, you know, a positive perspective on life. The glass is half full. I mean, that's what you need in the morning, right? Monday morning, work week coming. Um, don't worry, things usually turn out okay. That, that's sometimes how we hear this promise, but, but that's not what it is. Um, things do not just work out by themselves, do they? Not, not, not at all. I mean, you think about it. Those of you who have teenagers in the home, do their rooms just kind of naturally stay clean and tidy and put together without any input from you or any work on their part? No, not at all. I mean, without you know, deliberate attention without supervision. I mean, those rooms are going to look like a disaster zone, right? They don't just work out. And, and this promise here doesn't say that everything happens to work out in the end. You know, a Christian philosophy of 
of the world, that things just work out. No, this promise is about God. This promise is about His power, about His sovereign control of over His world, His intervention in our lives. God causes all things to work together for good, is what Paul is saying. And, and to whom does God make this promise? You look at verse 28 again. It says, for those who love God. That's, that's shorthand for believers. Christians, by definition, are people who love God. And so this isn't a generic promise for all people everywhere at all times, but it's a specific promise to specific people, God's own sons and daughters. For, for those who know and love God, God works together all things for their good. Now, Immediately hearing that, some Christians here with, with sensitive consciences, they begin to worry, right? Okay, so God works out things for good for those who love him. Do I love God enough? Um, I'm not quite sure. Sometimes I love other things more, or it feels like I love other things more. Um, does that mean God's not going to do good in my life if you know the quality of my love is just not up to um, the, the level that he wants? He's not going to do good. He's not going to turn my bad things to good. And And all of a sudden, this grand promise, it just kind of loses its power, right? Instead of instilling confidence in us, it it creates alarm. And I think that's maybe why Paul adds something at the end of verse 28. Um, Who are those who love God? He says they're the people who have been called according to his, to God's purpose. In other words, God's love, God's purpose, God's grace are prior. Like John says, 1 John, we love God because he first loved us. I mean, his love is primary. This promise is not conditioned on the quality of your love for God. This promise is grounded in his eternal love for you as his son or daughter. And, and what exactly does he promise? What exactly does God promise to us here? It might be helpful first to think about what he doesn't promise. Um, God does not promise to spare Christians from pain and suffering. Um, All things here, this promise, all things, it's it's broad, and it includes the bad things and the good things, the the sorrows and the joys. Um, We live in a fallen world where all kinds of awful things happen, and God doesn't say, if you love me, I'll spare you from all of that. Uh, I mean, bad things happen to Christians just like they happen to everyone else. Um, no one ever loved God more than Jesus Christ, and what happened to him? I mean, he was hated, he was tortured, he was executed on a Roman cross. And, and we need to remember this, that, that God doesn't promise to spare us from suffering. I mean, we live in a culture that, that prizes safety, that prizes comfort and, and health, and we live in a culture that says if there is a God and he's good, then he will, might, he will make your life pleasant and comfortable. That's, that's what God ought to do. And, and we're influenced by that perspective. And, and when suffering comes, we're surprised. You know, God, what are you doing? I thought you loved me. I thought you were taking care of me. Why is this happening? And we're just, we're surprised by suffering and we start to question God's love. But, but God never promised to spare us from bad things. Jesus didn't die for us so that we could live comfortable suburban lives. He just, he didn't. What God promises here, what, what this promise is about, is that He will turn our bad things into good. 
He will turn our bad things to good. Suffering does not have the last word. It's not the suffering does not have the ultimate power in your life. It it can't keep you from experiencing the good things that God has promised you in Christ. That that's what God is promising here that the good things that he has in store for you in Christ suffering cannot keep you from them. One last question about this promise, well what are the good things that God has promised? What is the good he promises to bring out of the bad? And and Paul, he's going to tell us more about this in verses 29 and 30. We'll we'll look at those verses in the next point, but but what God promises is Christ-likeness and final glorification. When, when you hear all things will, will work together for good, the, the good, according to God's definition, is your future glory with Christ, in and with Christ. And, and you know, that is just, it's shorthand for all the good you've ever dreamed of and, and boatloads more than you've ever imagined. That's what Paul's talking about, but but what we need to realize is that that good that God promises, it's future. It's future. Um, it, it's not as if God's saying, you know, something bad happened to you this week, and so next week there's just blessings in store for you. You know, forget about the bad because tomorrow it's all going to be better. That's not what He promises. Um, this promise is about the ultimate future, the ultimate good. That's, it's not only future, it's a promise about the ultimate good, eternal good, freedom from sin's corruption and, and presence and power. And So it doesn't mean, well, you lost your job, that means God's just going to give you a better job. No. Um, maybe. Maybe He will give you a, a better job. Maybe He won't. That, that's not what this promise is about. And it, it listen... It's not because God is a killjoy, okay? We might think, well, why wouldn't God just give me the good things that he, he wants me to have that I think I need? I mean, it's not because God's a killjoy. It's not because He's indifferent to your happiness. It means that God is writing a bigger story than we can imagine. Our, our dreams are too small. Our dreams for goodness, our desires for goodness and greatness and glory, they're too small, actually, um, in, in light of what Paul's saying. God's writing a bigger story, and his definition of what is, what is good for you is, is bigger and bolder and greater than, than our definition of what is good. There's a, a scene near the end of The Lord of the Rings, and I'm not sure if it's in the films, it's definitely in the book, but uh, towards the end of, of the story, Sam Gamgee, who's a hobbit, he's, he's reunited with the wizard Gandalf. They haven't seen each other for quite some time. They're close. And, and Sam is just surprised and overjoyed because not that long before, um, the Dark Lord Sauron looked like he was going to win. It looked like he was going to destroy Middle-earth, everything good, everything that, that makes for happiness. But to everyone's surprise, uh, Sam's friend Frodo uh, succeeded in his mission. Um, the, the ring, the ring of power. If you don't know the story, you're thinking, what on earth is this guy talking about? But, but the ring of power um, was destroyed, and so Sauron fades away, and his, his evil kingdom collapses, and it's a, it's a new day for Middle-earth. And Sam says to Gandalf, after they've been separated for some time, uh, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. 
But then I thought I was dead myself. And then he asks this question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And brothers and sisters, God's promise in Jesus Christ is that yes, everything sad is going to come untrue. He promises that all things, the good, the bad, all things will work together for your ultimate good. I mean, we're not going to necessarily see it right now. We're not going to know how these terrible things that we've endured are, are working for our good. But God promises they will. Everything sad will come untrue. I mean, God is just going to work all this together and by His wisdom, by His power, and He's going to dazzle you for all eternity with His goodness and His grace in your life. And so you can be confident. You can be confident that you will reach that future glory because, because of the Spirit's help, because of God's promise. And there's a, a third reason here in our passage God's purpose, God's purpose, verses 29 and and 30. Um, You can have confidence because you can have confidence that this promise that all things will work together for your good, your bad things will turn to good. You can have confidence that that's true. Why? Because God doesn't leave anything to chance. The, The future glory, the good that he promises, he purposed and planned it from all eternity and nothing can stop him from fulfilling his purposes. That's what Paul's saying in, in verses 29 and 30. Now, now these two verses, um, they make some people uncomfortable. You know, there's, there's words in, in these verses that raise big questions. Um, words like predestined, and, and that raises questions. Are, are we just puppets and God's pulling the strings and it's all this this game, or, or, you know, some people love to debate the theology of these verses. I, I think of the, you know, the, what I like to call the theology bros, you know, the, the guys with the long beards and they've got John Calvin's face tattooed on their arms or their chest. And, you know, they, they sit around, um, telling jokes. Hey, why did the Arminian cross the road? And it's like, ah, ha, 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 ha. I don't know why the Arminian crossed the road. Um, And something critical, you know, that gets lost in these debates. Uh, and, and what gets lost is the fact that these verses are not here so that we can debate theology. They're here to give comfort and encouragement and hope and strength and confidence to weak, weary, frail Christians who don't know the future and are worried that they're not going to make it to the future that God promised. These verses are shouting that nothing can stand in the way of God's purposes for you in Christ. And and Paul says two things about God's purpose for you here in these verses. If you're a Christian, Paul says two things about God's purpose for you. He says there's a destination, there's a destination, and that God's purpose is unstoppable. Um, The destination, verse 29, and just to put it simply, the destination is Christ-likeness. Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is the destination 
perfect conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. That is, perfect conformity in character. That is, even physical conformity. Resurrection bodies. Doesn't mean we're all going to look like Jesus physically, but we're all going to be like Him in character and in His glorious resurrection body. Some uh, scholars call this Christoformity. That is God's, that's the destination God has purposed for you in Christ. And, and notice Paul says that, that God predestined us for this. There's that word. And, and scary for some, but, but if you understand it here in its context and what Paul's saying, I mean, this word is just bursting with confidence and assurance. Um, predestined means to decide beforehand, to determine beforehand. And it's about planning and intention and, and purpose. And you can even hear uh, the word destination in, embedded in the term. God purposed and planned for you to become like Christ. And he did that long before you even knew Christ, long before you ever put your faith in Christ. In fact, the Bible says elsewhere that, that God did this before the foundation of the world, that this has always been his purpose for you. If you're someone in Christ, this has always been God's purpose for you. And, and again, we have all kinds of questions. I mean, how does that all work out? And, and it kind of sounds unfair. And does that mean I have no real, like, free freedom? That I'm just kind of a robot doing what God programmed me to do? I'm going to punt on all that today because Paul takes up some of those questions later, chapters 9 to 11. Uh, we'll get there eventually. But today, here, in this passage, we need to hear comfort and encouragement. Predestined means that your future happiness and glory is guaranteed in Christ. There's no question about it. No question at all. If you're in Christ today, your future glory with Christ is certain. So there's, there's a destination. As Paul highlights God's purpose here, there's a destination. The second thing he says about it, about God's purpose, is that it's unstoppable. God's purpose is unstoppable. Um, God always fulfills his purposes. Do, do you hear that? Always. Every single time, without fail, always fulfills his purposes. His purpose is unstoppable. And, and Paul here, he, he unpacks that in what um, uh, theologians call the golden chain of salvation. Theologians love to come up with these, these phrases. The golden chain of salvation. And, and stick with me for a moment, okay? We're going to talk about a little bit of grammar. We're going to talk about some other things. Just stick with me for a moment. The golden chain of salvation. Paul links together five verbs. Uh, for new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. And, and each of these verbs, God is the subject. And you're thinking back to elementary school, what's the subject? He's the one doing the action. God is the subject. He's, he's the one doing the action. And believers are the object of God's actions. We receive the benefits of what God does. And, and this chain, the reason it's referred to as a chain is because it's unbreakable. It begins in eternity past with God's foreknowledge and it leads without fail to glorification in eternity future. And, and Paul says it, it begins with, with God foreknowing. God foreknew certain people. Now, realize in the Bible, God's foreknowledge is not simply about him knowing facts about things. I mean, God knows all things. The Bible affirms that over and over again. 
But, but here Paul says that God foreknew people. Not that he knew facts about them. For example, that they, they would one day turn to um, Christ in faith. It says he knew the people. It's, it's personal language. It's relational language. It's, it's about God's covenant love. Think about it this way. To be foreknown is to be foreloved. It's God saying, I love you because I love you and I've set my affection on you. You are mine. I commit myself to you and I will stop at nothing to bring you safely home to eternal glory in Christ. That is, that is God foreknowing certain people. It's, it's Him setting His love on us before the foundation of the world. That is, that is true of you if you are in Christ today. And then the chain continues. Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. That is, he effectually called them out of unbelief into a state of belief. Those whom he called, he also justified. And then the last uh, section, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This, this golden chain. Now, notice the final link in the chain, glorification. I mean, that's, that's still future, right? I mean, that, that's, that perfect conformity to Christ, resurrection bodies, that is still future, and yet notice the verb is in the past tense, just like the others. I mean, how can Paul say that God has already done this? All whom He foreknew, all whom He predestined, all whom He called, all whom He justified, He also glorified, done deal. I mean, some of you are sitting there thinking, I don't feel glorified. I mean, if this is glory, something went terribly wrong. Um, What does Paul mean? Well, he's looking at things from God's vantage point. You see, from God's vantage point, it's a done deal. God has already purposed and predetermined the end already. He's not debating what to do with you. The, The issue is settled. And the golden chain is unbreakable. All whom God foreknew, predestined, called, and justified will be glorified. All, without exception. His purpose is unstoppable. His purpose is unstoppable. He he causes everything, everything you ever experience to serve your eternal good in Christ. I mean, do you see the confidence this can give you? I mean, set aside the debates for a moment about predestination and all that. Do you see the, the confidence this gives? Your future does not ultimately rest on you. I mean, can you imagine if it did? Uh, can you imagine if um, your eternal future depended on you? I mean, would you even make it through one day without having a complete nervous breakdown? I mean, you imagine the, the anxiety, the fear, the... You know, any second now I could screw up this whole thing and and make a wreck of everything. I mean, I go on a trip and I forget to pack a toothbrush. Do I really want to be in charge of my eternal destiny? I mean, it's not going to look, it's not going to be pretty. Our confidence, our confidence as Christian men and women is God's eternal love. He set His affection on us. In eternity past, He sent His Son to live and die and rise for us. In history, He sent His Spirit to help us in our weakness. And He promises to cause our bad things to turn out for our good. His his purpose, His unstoppable 
purpose for you is glory in Christ. And I want to close today by reading from the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, it's been a while since I've done this, maybe like three weeks, four weeks, maybe two months. I have to tell you, I work really hard to resist the temptation to end every single sermon with the Heidelberg Catechism, okay? I mean, it just, it expresses these truths so beautifully, so wonderfully. And just listen, just listen to what's said here. Um, Question and answer number one. What is your only comfort in life and death? I mean, it just gets right to the heart of things, right? What is your only comfort in life and death. And here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, All things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Do you want confidence for this journey we call the Christian life? I mean, it's right here. You belong to Christ. Not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of your heavenly Father. And your Father in heaven will cause all things to work together for your eternal good in Jesus Christ. That's our confidence. Let me pray for us. Our God, we thank You for for these precious promises. We thank You for your eternal love and purpose for us in Christ. And and so often, God, these things seem so remote from us, but would you make them living, breathing realities in our day-to-day lives, that we would rest our whole selves on, on you and your grace and your love that will never let go of us. Would you help us to live in this broken world as, as people who are confident in Christ, people who are weak and yet confident in Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.